us to just um, just allow the Holy Spirit to meet us in here. And I, I, I don't know what God's going to do, but let me, let me say this, because I think this is a place of mistrust that people have. That uh, if we invite the Holy Spirit to meet us and it creates an, an environment of emotion, that emotion is somehow manipulative. And first, I want to just tell you, there's just zero manipulation in the room. <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, and when emotions become present in an environment, um, what, what, what matters is how they're stewarded from the motivation of the heart. God gave us our emotions uh, as a gift. And when we deny them from being expressed in community or in presence, it's not like a healthy thing. And I, I, I just, here's what I think. You know, where's sweet Emmeline? Where are you at, Emmeline? Emmeline, you know, just talked to me a second and, you know, reminded me there's the, there's the 80% of things people deal with, which if I were to be honest and be completely unemotional and just objective, are just people need to learn how to grow up and be more mature. A lot of times, I, I love people. I sit with people as a pastor, and my, as I'm trying to help them, what I'm trying to help them see is, you're here. Yes, I'm not saying this isn't hard, but you're here because you refuse to grow up. Forgiveness takes maturity. Honor takes maturity. Not letting bitterness come into your heart takes maturity, right? Paul says this wild thing to the Corinthian church when they're struggling in frustration with each other. He goes, wouldn't you rather be wronged than defame the name of Jesus? That heart that says, yes, I would actually rather be wronged than defame the name of Jesus, maturity. It's not a state, that's not a negative thing. I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff that, that what we deal with, we've got to learn how to grow up in Jesus, put on Christ-like nature and walk in the way of the kingdom. But there's also the 20% which when we act like it doesn't exist. Things like sexual abuse in the church. Things like uh, manipulative and broken leadership that refuses to take accountability. Things like friends and parents who've died too soon. When we, when we don't actually know how to walk through those things and process those things, if we, if we treat the 20% like we treat the 80%, what we'll actually do is we'll cause more damage to ourselves. And here's, here's just something, I, I said this to a few of you as we were talking, but I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna say this, that there are probably several people in this room that you actually have a, an experience right now with mistrust because you walked through something that violated you and you didn't walk through the process of grieving. Some of that in ways that are ways like sexual abuse or rape, others in the ways of simply losing somebody you love in a way that you never expected it. And one of the things that I, uh, is true of Western civilization, of 
whether you're here from America or you're here from Europe, whether you're, whether you're here, every, all, even, even Eastern civilization has been deeply influenced by Western civilization. Th- this idea, we have lost our ability to grieve. And one of the things that you, you have to know is that grief is the way your soul expresses honor for the thing that you've lost. That's what your soul is trying to do. When, when you ache for something that's been taken from you, whether that's your sense of safety, whether that's your sense of sexuality, whether that's a person you love, when something that matters to you has been taken from you, there is a grief that wells up inside of you, and that grief is a gift from God. It is the way your soul is trying to say this thing that is now gone mattered so much to me. And because we don't know how to grieve, because we aren't willing to grieve, because instead of grieving, we numb. Instead of grieving, grieving, we hide. What happens is all of that pain, grief is the journey of healing that God has ordained for you to naturally walk through in your person. It's a gift from God. And when you refuse or don't know how to, a lot of times people don't refuse to, they just don't know how to. It's not, a, it's not tools we have in our tool belt. What happens is that grief goes sideways and it breaks you up from the inside out. It breaks you up from the inside out. And I actually feel like there are many of you that your breakthrough is attached to your grief. And there's, a, there's biblical perspective on grief. Right? We, we are not those who grieve as if we don't have hope. There, there, there is a reality. We, we don't take Christ out of our vision of grief, but we never actually lose the concept that it requires us to go on a journey of restoration and healing. And I think we have a false idea. Uh, we, we are people of the supernatural. This is a, that's a, that's a good belief. God is supernatural. He works in supernatural ways. He wants to meet us in supernatural ways. But part of the way we actually hold on to that that is broken is that everything that is sincerely of God happens instantaneously. Can I just tell you, I am thankful for the handful of moments in my life where God has met me supernaturally and instantaneously. But the vast majority of the ways that he has met me in life has been through the slow journey of meeting me in pain, in, un- in doubt, and in uncertainty. And you need to know that when, when he does that, he does that for good purpose because it's actually in the journey with Jesus through things that I'm struggling with where I find out who he really is. You know what I find out when God rescues me in an instant? He's powerful. You know what I find out when God journeys with me through pain? He loves me. He loves me. And he's kind. And he knows me. And he sits with me. The God of the universe grieves with me, hangs with me, loves with me. And I want to tell you, there are many of you 
have robbed yourself, and I don't say that as an accusation, that's maybe the long, wrong language, have, have allowed to been robbed from you things that can only be given to you when you go on a journey of long-suffering with Jesus. Eugene Peterson, describing the, the Christian life, right, says it's, it's a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. I would just love to ask who here, I'm not gonna, I'm not, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna force you to do anything with this. But if you're here and you just would say, I have some, I have some deep mistrust that has been built up in my life through things that have happened to me and around me. I would love to invite you to stand. If you're not comfortable, you don't have to. But if that's you, I'd like you to stand and I'd really like to pray for you. I'll wait. I know there's always a few more that you're not sure whether to stand, but if your heart's beating, it's you. Yeah. Yeah. So here, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pray for a moment, but I'm gonna expect God for a journey. And what, what this is about, what, what right now is about, is about recognizing that there is places that you have to let Jesus walk through with you. If God wants to show off in your life in a moment of power, so be it. Yes, Lord, I'm all in. But this is not a statement of saying, God, you better meet me supernaturally or you don't really love me. It's about recognizing that God has actually already hardwired you in your person, in who he made you to be, in your Imago Dei, the image-bearing nature of God, to walk through what you've walked through to find fullness of restoration and wholeness and healing. And I wanna just say to, to anyone standing or not standing, if you have ever faced emotional abuse, physical abuse, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, you desperately need to find someone to be honest with, to share that place of grief with, and then to go on the journey with a professional counselor who has the skills to walk you into wholeness. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with admitting when we need help. No human being was ever meant to be taken advantage of in that way. And if that's something that's part of your story, do not let it stay part of your story because there is freedom for you. And that is not pushing down or making small what has happened to you. It is simply making big what Jesus can do in you. And we have to let God go after this. We have to let God go after this. So if you're, if you're standing, I just would, would you, again, if this is sincere, put your hands out. If, if, you, if you don't like doing that, that's fine. 
I think there's sometimes something good about expressing what we're trying to do, but the, the best thing is that God loves sincerity. So if you, if, if you ever feel like you're doing something that doesn't feel sincere, just do, do what feels sincere. God loves sincerity. And so let's just put a, put a posture of sincerity in front of him. And friends, if you're sitting, can you just close your eyes and begin to pray with me? And let's just ask God, we're, all we're doing is consecrating a moment. We're, we're, we're taking a stand and we're allowing God to define something from here moving forward. Father, I love these people. I pray for them right now in Jesus' name. Lord, I just even admit to you, I, I feel this like desire in my own heart. Lord, I wish I, wish I could stay longer. I wish I didn't have to go back in a few days. Lord, I wish I could walk with them. But I know this. I know you love them more than I do and you see them more than I do. And they have gifted and loving people around them right here and right now who are qualified to be friends and qualified to be safe places. And Lord, I pray for every single person who stood who just goes, I know I've got seeds of mistrust in my heart of things that have happened in my past. I'm praying right now for the authority of Jesus to come and love, to come and meet, to come and move, to come and heal. Lord, we are committing to you that we trust you. Lord, that, that, that we realize even where we don't trust you, we're willing to come alongside and walk with you until you change and transform our hearts. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has just been mistreated, that you would love them in Jesus' name. I pray that anyone here that has lost someone, a mom, a dad, a sibling, a friend, that that place of death that has created a, 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 an ache in their soul, that you would love them and that you would meet them. Lord, that you would actually grieve with them, that you would take them on a journey of wholeness and restoration. Lord, we thank you for the power of the comforter of the Holy Spirit. I pray for that right now in Jesus' name, in fullness of faith, that the comforter would come and comfort, that the power of the Holy Spirit would come and be among us. Lord, we ask for this right now in Jesus' name. We need you. We cannot do this alone. We are confessing to you. We are inadequate on our own. It is only by you and by your spirit that we have power. And Lord, we need you and we need your help. We need you and we need your help. So God, right now in Jesus' name, would you come and bless every single person who stood. Come and meet us right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you're standing, I want you to, I want you to stay standing, okay? And that's just something I just feel from the Lord. I, I want you to find another person who's standing. And I just want you to grab hands with them, Okay? Find another person who's standing. I want you to grab a hand. If you're, if you're sitting, just find another person who's sitting. And, I, and I, I want you just to grab hands with them. We're going to pray together. You're going to pray. And I, I just feel like the Lord, uh, in, in just in pairs of twos, I want you in pairs of twos because I want everybody praying. I just feel like the Lord has, 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 a, has a spirit of breakthrough in this for us. And I just think it's sometimes it really matters that we participate. And I, I just think I want to honor those who stood by praying with the, another person who stood. And I want to honor those who sat by praying with another person who sat. I just think, I, I want to ask you, would you just pray for a spirit of breakthrough, for trust to get restored in our heart, and for a willingness to do what it takes. Some places of mistrust get healed in a moment, some get healed in a week, and some get healed in five years. But I'm telling you, whatever the journey, it's worth it. And it's time to go on it. So can we do that? Can you guys just start praying for each other? Just, just in pairs of two. I want everybody just to pray at least for a second over your friend, over each other in this community. Let's just go after it. Let's just pray for each other for a second.
Come on, well, Jesus, we, we just say that we uh, are yours, we believe you, and we trust you. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and grab your seats. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just try to uh, give my best 25 minutes of my two and a half hour teaching. And then Harvest is going to lead us in a couple of songs. And then we'll close our morning. So, uh, guys, I just felt like I felt from the Lord that this was like just not the right time for us to try to just kind of respond in like full out ministry and just confession and, and, and those kind of things. I just felt the, the Lord say that to, to withhold for that for today. But I just want to tell you for, for those that well, I'm speaking this stuff and you know stuff is going on in your hearts. I believe that God has a moment waiting for you in the school of breakthrough. And I just trust him for it. I just trust him for it. And um, I, I, can I take a, just some, some time and encourage you? Can I do that? About why Jesus is trustworthy. Can I just, can I just speak to just some truths? Guys, here's the, here's the, here's the hard reality about our faith. Uh, it, it, cannot, it, it cannot be broken away from supernatural convictions. Our faith is banked on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. I can't, I can't separate from that. It means I cannot separate my deepest convictions from a supernatural claim that cannot be affirmed by simply ration or logic. I'm not saying that Christianity isn't a deep foundational uh, logical truth. I actually believe that the Christian faith is the most logical conviction about the reality of the world. I believe that, in, I believe in Jesus, not simply supernaturally. I believe in Jesus, not just simply uh, 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 relationally. I believe in Jesus intellectually. I believe the intellectual case for the reality of the substance of Jesus and Christianity is unparalleled by anything else. But we, we hold that by recognizing we hold to these truths by the reality that it is both what we believe intellectually, but it is what we believe spiritually. And that's why we must be people of spirit and of truth. We must be people of the word and of power, because that is what makes us who we are. And often when we are Christians who don't trust, we'll lean one way or the other. We'll just want to be people of the spirit who want to distance ourselves from the Bible. Or we'll just want to be people of the Bible who want to distance ourselves from the Spirit rather than being the fullness of who we are, people of Spirit and of Word. But in the midst of that, there is deep and profound reason for our hope. The first I won't really speak to because in some ways we spoke to it yesterday and I, I, I feel like I'll address this other times. I just want to remind you guys that the alternative to the Christian story or the story of faith, which is the secular story, is just not working. It's evidence of brokenness and, and rejection is actually clear. It's something that is not worthy of our allegiance. Second, I wanna, I wanna remind you of this. Christianity stands alone in trustworthiness of its historical witness. I, I, I say this with integrity. Christianity stands alone in its integrity and its witness of historical reality. There is no other religion, there is no other book, there is no other text, there is no other faith that is so anchored in historical accuracy, that is so anchored in historical context, that is so anchored in provable facts and realities. 
And I want to remind you something. Something that I, I, I feel like people experience all the time is saying, well, how can you trust the Bible? How can you trust the Bible? And again, fair to say the Bible makes supernatural claims. So I have to be somebody who believes supernatural things are possible to fully affirm the Bible. I have no problem admitting that, and I have no problem telling that to my friends. Because even all my friends who think they're agnostics, they're not really agnostics, they're just bitter. And there's a reality that so many people who are actually dealing with deep places of doubt and agnosticism and atheism in their life are just, it's, it's a front for how angry they are. Because every human knows there is a mystery to this world we're trying to put language to. And I believe that Christianity stands alone in its ability to do that. But people say, how, how can we trust the Bible? Let me, let me, maybe some of you have heard this before, but let me walk through something with you that simply should bring encouragement to you, that the Bible is the most trustworthy historical document in human history. The Bible is the most trustworthy historical document in human history. What, what, makes, a, what makes a historic document trustworthy? Two things, okay? Two things make it trustworthy. Oh, this fan, it's blown all my notes. Gosh, fan, leave me alone. Here we go. What makes a historical document trustworthy? Two things. First would be the number of ancient historical copies we have of something, right? That makes sense. The more, the more copies you have of something in an ancient context, therefore the more verifiable it is, right? The second would be the length of distance between when we believe something was written and the, the last copy we have of it, right? So if I, if I have something that I just wrote 10 minutes ago, but I told you, it was written 3,000 years ago. This is just the oldest copy of it. It wouldn't be very credible, right? That makes sense to you guys? Or if I have one copy of something from 500 years ago versus I have 50 copies of something 500 years ago, the weight of historical evidence on the 50 is obviously more trustworthy than the one, right? You guys remember this? You might have been too young for this, but it was maybe 10 or 12 years ago, there was this moment where, where uh, somebody found an ancient, an ancient piece of writing called the Gospel of Judas, and they made it this really big deal, and A&E made this thing like the lost gospel of Jesus, what, what Christianity's been trying to hide its entire life. And, and they talked about this gospel of Judas was just Gnostic garbage. And, and, uh, and let me tell you why why we can know when we, you find an ancient document like that, that there's nothing all of that powerful or secretive of it. Because the early church knew that the gospel of Judas was garbage, so they didn't copy it. That's why there's only one of it. You, you get that, right? That, that the weight of how we know whether something is trustworthy or not is trustworthy things got copied and untrustworthy things did not get copied. And so there's all of these claims that are so uneducated, but when we actually understand what makes something historically trustworthy, you're going to find something pretty significant. Let's go through this. I want to show you the top uh, historical, do we have this on the screens? I think we'll have this on the screens. The, the most trustworthy historical documents in the world. First, there's this guy named Lucretius. He's an ancient historian. He, he died in the 50s BC. We have two copies of Lucretius's histories. And the, the distance between when we believe they were written and when we found them is about 1,100 years. So, right, we believe Lucretius wrote these around 75 B.C. We don't have a copy of it until 1,000 B.C. Does that make sense? We've got two of them. Tenth most credible piece of history in the world. Second, our second most trustworthy is Pliny. Maybe you guys have heard of Pliny. He's actually a pretty well-known Roman historian. He lived in the, in the late 80s, right around 100 A.D. We have seven copies of Pliny's history 
from 750 years old. Okay? So again, that idea. So how many copies do we have? We have seven copies of Pliny. But what's the earliest copy we have? 850 AD. It means 750 years of distance between when we believe it was written and the latest copy that we have of it. Third, Plato. Anyone ever heard of Plato? Yeah, Plato's a pretty well-known guy. So we actually only have seven copies that are considered historical of Plato. We, we, Plato wrote those at around 400 BC. The earliest copy we have is 1,200 years later. Have you guys ever sat in a history class where some professor goes, uh, Plato's made up? Plato's not real. Of course not, right? Everybody understands that there's, there's a significance. Plato was a real person. It, but, but we look at that, seven copies, 1,200 years. You get the point. Dothomethnes, Herodotus, and Tunis. Aren't these Greek names wonderful? Thucydides. All of these people, these are all historians. Euripides, Arathosthenes. All of these people, these are historians. And we see the amount of copies, 8, 8, 8, 8, 9, 10, 10. 1,300 years, 1,100 years, all these things. Then we get to some names we know, right? Caesar. We get to Caesar. We have 10 copies of Caesar's writings. We have about 1,000 years of history of Livy, another historian. But it needs to go up. We have 20 copies. Then we have Tacticus, 20 copies of Tacticus, 1,000 years old. Aristotle. Everybody's heard of Aristotle, famous uh, Greek philosopher, one of the most trustworthy historical characters in history. 49 copies of Aristotle. 1,400 years. Then we have Sophocles, again, a significant Greek philosopher. 193 copies of Sophocles from ancient writings. But look how far apart they are, 1,400 years. The earliest writing we have of Sophocles is from 1,000 AD, yet we know that he lived uh, in, uh, well towards 500 BC. Then the second most trustworthy historical document in the word, world, Homer's Iliad. We have 643 copies of it that are considered historical. 900 BC is one we believe was written. We have a copy from 400 BC. It's pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable. And then you get to the most trustworthy historical document in the world, the New Testament. How many do we have? We have 5,600 what we consider historical documents of the New Testament. What is the closest we have? We have actually, this is, I need to update this. Recently, we have found gospels of the, of the gospel of Mark, and we have found writings of, of the gospel of John from earlier than 100 AD. They now estimate that we have historical copies of the first text of writings from within 50 years of when they were actually written. But everywhere you go, you will go into philosophy studies, you will go into to, to universities, and what will they say? Christianity is made up. Jesus isn't real. The Bible's not trustworthy. Why? I'm what makes me want to swear. Why in the world is the Bible not trustworthy? I get it that the Bible makes supernatural claims. I will honor that. I will honor when people go, I don't know how to understand those. But when you want to tell me that the New Testament is not trustworthy, then you are a liar and you are not looking at the facts. The reality is the New Testament in every way can be trusted. There is not a single reference in the Old Testament or the New Testament which has been proven to be archaeologically false. Many years ago, when you looked at the journals and said, well, this can't be true, one of the things they pointed to, right, was that there was no historical evidence of Pilate. Pilate didn't exist. Pilate was a fake character. The, the Bible pretty much is, it, Pilate's a pretty important guy in the story. If Pilate didn't exist, that, I understand that's why that's a big deal to people who don't believe the Bible. For a long time, zero evidence, zero evidence, zero evidence, until about 30 years ago that they found Pilate's house, right? You go to ancient Israel. Have you never been to Israel? It's one of the most incredible experiences of the world. You, you go to, you know, I went to Israel, and I was expecting to have like a profound emotional experience with Jesus. That's what, I, that's what I went going. You want to know what I had? I had an encounter with faith. Do you want to know what they found? They have found the temple from northern Israel 
where they sacrificed to the false gods in rebellion against Yahweh, built in 950 BC. They found it. In, in the book of Genesis, it describes a gate where Abraham walks through to have a significant encounter. You can walk through that gate. The reality is when we want to look at the historical witness of the Bible, there is no faith. Listen, and I honor, I honor my Muslim friends. I actually, I actually I, I don't agree or believe in the Muslim faith. I believe the Muslim faith is, is, is a deep and profound and historical witness. The Muslim faith and the Quran hold no witness or candle to the significance of the historical witness of the Bible. I, and I, and I, when I, my Muslim friends, I remind them of this, that you know when you put the Quran and the Bible together, they do not compare in their trustworthiness. The claims and the significance of the archaeologically and the historical evidence of the New Testament is significant. And, and, and the, the, the reality is, friends, that when you looked at, um, the, until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was this incredible find that happened in the 1920s. It was a game changer for biblical understanding. That the oldest copy we had of Isaiah, of Isaiah, was around 1100 AD. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found an entire intact roll of the scroll of Isaiah from 300 BC. 300 years before Christ. Guess how many errors it had from, from one? One, but it was a spelling error. One. 1,300 years, the exact same text. Because the Bible is trustworthy, and the evidence proves it. Anyone who wants to stand in a classroom and tell you that the Bible can't be trusted is a liar, and they are not willing to listen to the facts. That doesn't mean the Bible requires me to look at these facts and go, do I, can I actually believe Jesus rose from the dead? I honor that in people, but I do not honor when people want to discredit the validity of the Bible because it's an inaccurate conclusion. So the question, right, the question then remains, if the Bible can be trusted, can we trust the resurrection account of Jesus? And by the way, this is what our entire faith hangs on. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, so I believe in the Bible. You get that, right? I, I, I believe in the resurrection in Jesus, so I submit to his lordship. Paul himself says it. If the resurrection is real, then everything we're saying is of truth. If the resurrection isn't real, we are the deepest to be pitied. Everything about our faith hangs on the resurrection. Here's what I would tell you. The life, death, and missing body of Jesus are overwhelmingly undisputed facts in the non-believing academic world. The proof of the resurrection is far more significant than you think it is. I love this quote by Brooke Fott Westcott. It says this, ranking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of the deficiency of the proof of it. Nothing in history is actually more documented than the life and the death and the missing body of Jesus. The only question is what happened to that missing body. I love Philip Yancey, he says this, in many respects I find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. Easter, make, Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. Moreover, Easter means he must be out on the loose there somewhere, right? Friends, you need to know this. The resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, the most supernatural claim that we make actually holds historical and intellectual truths. There is no historical evidence 
more supported than the fact that something happened to Jesus' body. There is more, no, no incident more historically documented than what happened to the first believers in the wake of his death. And the reality of the conviction of the first followers of Jesus who were willing to be beheaded and stoned, sawed in half, and martyred gruesomely and burdensomely. If you say it's for a lie, I say I do not believe you. I am convinced of this. How did the early church grow from a thousand to a million in the matter of 40 years in the greatest persecution of Christians the world has ever known? Because Jesus rose from the dead and he gave his church power. And there is a reality when you look at the fierceness of the conviction of the early church, how they were willing to live, how they were willing to die, how they were willing to share, how they were willing to lay down their lives. It's because something was in them that could not be shaken. The question is, what would cause a group of men and women to live like this, to lay down their lives like this, to go after the world like this? Because they were convinced that Jesus had rose from the dead so nothing could stop them. The evidence for us to go, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, is not something we simply claim because of emotion. I would tell you it's actually the most honest reflection of the statistical facts that exist. We have to come back. We have to come back to understanding that there is deep, deep reason. Deep, deep reason for this. Guys, I, I just want to remind you Christianity has also transformed the world in us unprecedented ways. We want to look at the historical value of this. Listen, I'm not going to go into this. The, 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 the church has done some pretty awful things throughout 2,000 years. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that there, there isn't reality of that or accountability for that. There, there is reality for that, and there should be accountability for that. But I also want to remind you what exists because Christianity exists. Are you thankful for hospitals? Yeah, it's because of Christians. Thankful for universities? It's because of Christians. You wanna know how America got to the place where it has a value for life? How the Western world got to a place where it had a value for life? Do you know that all of secular culture is actually some of the values of Christianity without submission to the king? It's simply what happens when you want to take some of the truths of the morality of Christianity but denounce them from the lordship of Jesus. The reality is when you look at what Christianity has brought into the world of, of love and care, are you, you thankful for orphanages? Are you thankful for foster care? You know, the first Christians were the first people in the world who stood up against infanticide, who, who stood up, who, the, the, the first Christians were the ones who were the only people who would take in the poor and the suffering. This is why Christianity was mocked by the Roman world as the, as the religion of slaves and women for the weak, not realizing that God loves to meet and put his spirit in the weak to shame the strong. This is what God has done, the historic witness of Christianity. I love this quote, Jerusalem of Pelican. He says this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with at least some sort of super magnet to pull it out of history, every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? How much would be left? Friends, I, I could go on longer. We just don't have time, but you just need to know this. The weight for trustworthiness of the, of the Bible, of the resurrection of Jesus, of the truth of Christianity holds weight that nothing else holds. Third, I want to remind you of this. Many of us are not frustrated because Christianity has failed us. We're frustrated because our heart longs for a form of Christianity many of us are not willing to live. 
that there, there's a reason when we struggle with doubt that we have to be honest, that part of the reason we struggle with doubt is not because Christianity has left us failing, but Christianity invites us places we're not willing to go. Uh, I want to I I remind you of this. This is one of my favorite, favorite quotes in history. Lucian, who was a second century Roman comedian, uh, basically traveled around the world putting on shows, and he was very famous in his time. And obviously in this time, part of what he was famous for was his deep hatred and mockery of Christians. I want, I want to read to you part of his comedy sketch of how he mocks Christians somewhere around 150, 170 AD. Listen to what he says. These deluded creatures you see have persuaded themselves that they are immortal and will live forever, which explains the contempt of death and the willing self-sacrifice that is so common among them. It was impressed on them too by their lawgiver that from the moment they are converted, deny the gods of Greece, worship their crucified sage, live after his laws, and that they are all brothers. They take his instructions completely on faith with the result that they despise all worldly goods and they hold them in common ownership. So any adroit and scrupulous fellow who knows the world had only get among them these simple souls and his fortune is quickly made because he plays with them. How does he mock Christians? Because they're willing to lay down their life for people. Because they're not in love with the world like the rest of them. Because they share their possessions. Because they believe in an eternal life. Friends, can we get back to get hating by the world because we're actually like Jesus, not because we're not like him? Can, can, I, can I remind you that, 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 that maybe part of why you're struggling with your faith is because there is a call to radical nature in Jesus that many of us have not been willing to go because we love the world. For instance, Jesus tells a parable, right? He, he tells a parable about a sower of seeds and he comes and sows the seed and some fall on the, the pathway and some fall among the weeds and some fall in, 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 in a, a good ground soil. You, you know the story. And Jesus goes and slain and he says, some of the seed, it, it, doesn't, it can't take root. It, the sun kills it. it. It gets choked up among the weeds. The birds come and eat it. But some falls on good soil and that good soil, it grows and it goes deep. And what does he say about the seed that gets among the weeds? It says the weeds represent the love of the world that so easily choke out the life of the gospel. Maybe it's time, maybe it's time to actually put your doubts to the test, not by running away from Jesus, but by finally becoming the radical Jesus has called you to be. Fourth, our faith has profound answers to the ache of all human, all of ache of humanity that nobody else can speak to. These are the core questions of every human being. Where did I come from? What went wrong? How do we fix it? And what is my purpose? These questions are at the ache of every human heart. Jesus alone has answers that can compel us to who we really are. Listen to John 20. I think a very important passage for us. The story of Jesus and Thomas. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in my hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas said to them, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. I love this story because I think one of the things that we don't know how to do is how to follow Jesus in the midst of doubt. And what I love about the Bible is it not just presents us with truth, it presents us with human moments that all of us can find ourselves within. Thomas making a statement, unless I believe, unless he shows me himself, unless I see him with my own eyes, I'm out. Think about everything that they had gone through. Think about everything these people had been through for the last three years. Every other disciple had experienced the resurrection of Jesus. But Thomas says, unless he shows up for me personally, I'm out. You know, one of my favorite parts of this passage, right? We skip right over it. Verse 26. A week later. A week later. Imagine what that week was like. The tension. Thomas was done. The other disciples had seen Jesus. But where did Thomas stay? He stayed in the house, friends. See, what happens far too long is that that many of us, when we experience doubt, at first minute of doubt, we bail. The first minute we confess that we're struggling with it, we're out the door. Rather than recognizing what you and I need to do is actually when we begin to experience a doubt, we need to confess it, but we need to stay in the house. And let me ask you, are you the kind of person that when your friend comes to you with a Thomas claim, they're safe enough to stick by you? We need to reclaim being the kind of church that doesn't cast Thomases out. And we need to reclaim being the kind of church when Thomases show up, they need to figure out how to stick around. Let me remind you, Matthew 28, Jesus ascends. He's giving the great commission. He's on the mountain. They're seeing him in reality. And what does it say? Some of them worshiped him and some of them doubted You want to know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't go, okay, my real people to the left, all you doubters to the right, we're going to talk about hell here in a little bit. What does he say? He speaks to all of them. He calls them. Now go. Make disciples. Go to the ends of the earth, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't you guys realize what what, what has called us when we're living in a place of doubt, the invitation of Jesus remains the same because it's often our doubts get figured out as we work out life with Jesus, not when we run from him. See, so many of us don't realize that the doubts we're settling with, the reason they become so scary and so dangerous is because you've never brought them into the light. And so they have this secret authority and power over you. And the only time you confess them is when you're finally on the way out because you don't know what else to do. And we would actually figure out the way of Thomas that says, when doubt presents itself, I'm going to put it out into the open and I'm going to stick around in the house long enough that God is going to meet me here. You would find profound answers for your doubt. Because you want to know the truth is the truth for Thomas, which is the truth for most people I know. The substance of Thomas's doubt wasn't unbelief. The substance of Thomas's doubt was anger. You want to know what Thomas felt? He felt what you and I feel. Jesus, you're going to show up for everybody else, but not for me. You're the God of the universe, and you're going to pick a time to come into the house when I'm not there. 
Is that how you feel about me? Is that how important I am to you? Why do you do that, Jesus? That is the substance of the human heart. The reason you and I have doubt is very little about our intellectual capacity. Most of the time it's because there was some moment in our life where we want to stand in accusation of God and said, you showed up for others, but you didn't show up for me, and I'm done. I'm done. And anger takes over. Because we've got to recognize that when we find ourselves in the place where Phil abandoned by Jesus, the only person safe enough to carry the weight is him. Jesus is not afraid of your anger. It's time you stop hiding and time you start living in the house because here's what I know about my God. He eventually shows up and shows you his sides and his hands and his feet. And you will have a moment where you say, my Lord and my God, because it's who he is. Because you don't need to be afraid of doubt. That doubt is a reality. You want to know what doubt is telling you? That faith is beating. When you are a person of faith, it welcomes all of the things you don't know. And oftentimes, doubt is what's happening in your brain where your faith is trying to take you places you've never been before. And what happens is doubt is often the reality where we want to accuse God because we feel like he has not done for us what he has done for others. And can I tell you this? For, for those in this room that you have people in your life that you love that are experiencing deep doubt, if you would commit to ministering to their anger more than ministering to their mind, you would find that Jesus would move in power. You want to know how many ex-atheists are, are, I've seen come to Jesus in my life and in my church? You want to know what the breakthrough always is? When you get to the moment that they stopped believing because they got hurt. They got hurt. And my guess is for many of us in this room, the story of our doubt, and I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't real intellectual questions. I'm not, not pressing on anyone who says, I have real intellectual questions. I'm just reminding us that many of us are actually deeply struggling, not because of intellectual questions, but because we have undealt with hurt. And it's time that we actually process the undealt with hurt in our life and allow Jesus to meet us there and to love us there. And I just want to remind you, you can trust God. And you know, I, I love the moment where Jesus in the gospels is encountering the man who, who comes to him for his child, right? And he asks Jesus if he'll heal him. And, and he asks the man this question, do you believe? In this incredible human moment where he responds, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Can I tell you guys sometimes the most profound thing you can do in the presence of God is say, Jesus, I trust you. Help me because I don't trust you. These things, they, they exist in us. And when we stop giving them power they don't deserve, 
when we start bringing them into the light, when we welcome Thomases into the house, when we start addressing the real problems underneath our doubt, when we realize God is good just because he didn't show up to you at the same time he showed up to someone else does not negate his goodness because we have landed on a decision. The cross and the resurrection are enough proof of his goodness for me. Everything else is a bonus. God could not speak to me for the rest of my life. I could not experience his presence for the rest of my life and God is good, period. Period. Because the cross and the resurrection are enough for me. And because I'm fixed there because I'm fixed there. I can be happy when my brothers and sisters have an encounter with Jesus, even though I'm longing for one myself. Can we get there? Can, can I just call you that that's a place that we can get to? Oh man, so many things running through my brain. I love you guys. The hard part about what I'm sharing with you is it's not instantaneous stuff. Can I just tell you the deep things of the kingdom are almost always things that require a journey? Do you forget what forgiveness really is? If anyone's ever told you that forgiveness is a light switch, that they haven't walked through things that are very hard. Forgiveness is a decision that you faithfully live out until that decision bears fruit in your life. I say, if, I, if Zane hurts me and I say I forgive you, the reality is in my heart, that doesn't mean a light switch has happened and suddenly I'm a different person. What that says is I look at Zane and I realize Zane is a son of God and he's beloved of God and my father feels differently about him right now than I feel about him right now. So I'm going to align with how my father feels about him and every time my heart wants to speak against him, I say no heart, I'm submitted to the Lord and I'm gonna speak how the father feels about Zane and sometimes I have to do that for a week, sometimes I have to do that for a month, sometimes I have to do that for a year but eventually my heart gets in alignment and forgiveness fully comes around and then I feel about Zane how the father feels about Zane. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is trusting Jesus with the wounds people cause us, not acting like wounds didn't exist. You, you, nobody can pay you back. Do you know the only one who actually has the authority to pay you back from the wounds people have caused you is Jesus? He's the only one. So forgiveness is actually going, this wound, Zane, you're so, I can't even imagine you would ever hurt me in your life. Zane was so terrible to me. This wound that he's created, Zane can't pay it back. So Zane, I, I liberate you from needing to pay me back for the step because Jesus has authority to pay me back. But you want to know why? Because he bought your debt on the cross. He owns it now. Your wound to me, he owns. He's the only one who can pay me back. So I say, I release you, I forgive you. I'm still hurt, Jesus can pay me back. So I'm gonna let the Father talk to me and then I'm gonna treat you how the Father talks to me about you. That's forgiveness. And sometimes forgiveness takes a long time. That's why we don't wanna do it because sometimes you have to labor in forgiveness for years because the wounds, they hurt. The power of Jesus. Guys, Jesus is not a light switch. He's a person. And he wants to walk with you because this is what you don't know. When you walk together, you become like him. And eventually the point comes where Zane hurts me. And I just instantly forgive him because I've been in the secret place so much with Jesus. I've just figured out how to be like him. And I don't always need to go and ask his help because he's already in me. So I, can, I just I forgive. Not because I'm better. It's Jesus is better. And I just get around him enough 
You guys get this, right? That Jesus is a storehouse and you can always access what he has. You know the truth of my, maybe your parents aren't like my parents, but the truth of my parents, I can go home. You want to know what I, I don't have to do when I go home? Is ask my parents if I can have what's in the fridge. Whatever is my parents is mine. I go into my house, if there's a Coke in the fridge, I get to take the Coke. Why? Because I'm their son and it's their house and it's just the way it works. They're generous. I know that about my parents. My parents, whatever is in their fridge, I can gladly have. Thank you, Jesus. Do you know your father in heaven's the same way? He's got a storehouse of stuff and he doesn't mind if you take it. <laughs> he, he has more forgiveness than you know what to do with. You just need to go get it. He's got more mercy, he's got more joy, he's got more kindness, he's got more hope, he's got more power. It's waiting for you. We just find it in the journey. And because we wanna make God into a magician more than a lover, when we wanna make God more into a magic trick than a relationship, we refuse to actually access what he has for us. Oh, Harv, you need to come up. God can be trusted and it's okay if it takes you some time for you to believe me. I'm just telling you it's time to start the journey because it's in the journey that God is gonna awaken your heart to who he really is. And can I just tell you, you need to know this. You're in a safe house. The Thomas within you is not going to be rejected here. You get to be a part of the week later. You get to be a part of the loving community that says we're gonna hang with you until Jesus comes with his hands and comes with his side and says, Thomas, here I am, here I am. You know, I love John chapter 17 describes when Jesus prays for us it's actually probably the only moment in the Bible where we have record of Jesus thinking about us and not the immediate context. He, he prays for those who will believe in his message after he's gone. And you want to know what he prays for? He prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Do you know that is the conviction of Jesus that you and I can actually be as close to each other as the Trinity is as close to each other. That, that you and I can have a bond of love and safety and trust that actually looks like the way Jesus and the Father and the Spirit have a bond of love and trust. Because it's what happens in the Spirit of Jesus when he moves in our lives. He prays that you would be protected prays that you would be kept safe and he honors those who would believe though they have never met it, isn't it amazing to know this in the mo this is this is not this is not cheesy christianity this is not a, 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 a an emotional statement this is the reality of scripture before jesus went on the cross he actually thought about us and he cried out to the father saying i know how hard it's going to be for those to believe in me who have not met me. Father, would you make them one? Would you keep them safe? 
Guys, he gets it. Jesus gets it and he loves you and he's for you. He's for you. It's time that we put the chips in the table to trust. And I just think God's got great things for us, yeah? Come on, will you stand? Let's just close in some worship. We just need to respond to God. That's the sense in my heart. We just need to respond to God. Father, we love you. We need you here. Come and meet us in Jesus' name. Come on, let's just worship together.
with him the more and more and more I come to the conclusion that there's another door there's not another doorway outside of his goodness there's no other doorway and I think sometimes I want to jump to something or jump to an understanding or jump to a, a head knowledge or jump to a, a wisdom that I need to have or or jump to a, a fear of the Lord or jump to all these things that he's going to pour out and he's going to give them, but there's no other doorway than the goodness of God. There's no other doorway than your goodness, Jesus. take a moment longer and linger. I know we're, we're, we're past lunch. We're into lunchtime now. I'm so sorry. Let's just take one more moment. And can we just begin to tell him and sing to him about his goodness? Can we just let praise arise out of our lips right now? Just sing to him about his goodness. Sing right to him. 
sing right to him. so quick for me to jump to singing it's going to be worth it from the perspective of me like I somehow am a gift to God which which I am it's going to be worth it it's going to be worth it it's going to be worth it and I just see him looking at us and in the middle of all of that sacrifice and all of that pain and then submitting himself as the living God to die on a cross that he looks at us he goes it's going to be worth it it's going to be worth it when I meet them face to face. It's going to be worth it. As he prayed that prayer, looking forward to believers, it's going to be, it's going to be worth it. It will all have been worth it. Jesus, we, we just say we want, to, we want to give you what you deserve. We want to give you your reward. It's me. I'm your reward. It's this tent. I'm your reward. We're your reward. We love you, Jesus. We say we offer our lives to you, God. We love you, Jesus. Amen. There is a um, prayer set today. Half of you are in the prayer room. If you're in the, the other half or in the tent, you're going to be in your teams today. So contact your outreach leader. We love you guys. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye. Lost and found. 115 in the, pra 115 in the prayer room. Yeah.